0: Hi there, and welcome to Calm After the Storm Survivorship and Other Stories with Amy Syed. This episode is brought to you by the Quantum Genius Program. Today, we're going to talk to someone who has a harrowing story of survivorship and thriving there afterwards. We do want to start by sharing a content warning. Information shared on our podcast can be graphic in nature and we recommend that you review the details of our podcast before listening. We appreciate you tuning in, and we hope that the story shared with you today is inspirational and helps you get through tough times that you may be facing. Welcome again to Calm After The Storm. This week, I will be speaking to Lee Mitchell. Lee Mitchell is a writer, marketer, brand builder, and career consultant. As the founder of Women in Biz Network, she has taken her business from a handful of women in her neighborhood to a national organization of over 35,000 women. Her focus is helping women build resilience after experiencing a personal or professional setback. After conquering her own mental health and family struggles throughout her business life, she has been compelled to teach women soft skills such as self-care, how to cope with depression and anxiety, and how to build confidence, grit, and resilience. Lee prioritizes the importance of how to brand yourself while being true to your story and struggles. I'd like you to start by kind of walking me through your earlier years as a child. What did your life look like with your parents and at home? My story begins at
1: birth, actually, because I was adopted. I had an interesting life situation in that uh, I was given up for adoption at three months and settled in with my family just outside of Toronto in a small town, a beautiful property on a on a lake. And... Yeah, my parents got to know me um, as their new child. But within the first two years of having been born, um, my parents split up because my father was having an affair and uh, decided that he didn't want to be in the marriage any longer. And that was a really extremely challenging situation for my mother for a number of reasons. Obviously, you know, the betrayal of that, but also to the fact that she was not working at that point. She had given up her job to move up north to the country and all of a sudden was trying to figure out, well, what does she do now? So what we did was uh, we moved back to the city and I moved in with my, my grandparents and my mother was trying to figure out what to do next. So she was looking for work. She, she moved in with my aunt. And uh, those those years were were really challenging for her uh, the first year or so. And so what we had to do was, you know, figure out what the next part of our life was going to be. My mother eventually got a job in a small town where my father had started to build a house for for the family. And luckily we were able to survive, um, with a lot of help from my grandmother. So that was a really formative time in my life because I realized from an early age that the women in, in our life were, were there to support us.
0: And that's how we got by in those early years. So, I just want to reiterate it because I find it really interesting, especially for your first, you know, five to seven years, which are formative years, um, as you were saying. But it sounds like you're about two or three when your parents separated and you moved in with your grandparents. Is that correct?
1: I was still a baby. I was, uh, I was about between one and two where I moved in with my grandparents and my mother would come and visit on the weekends. And I didn't see my father for close to a year. Cause my father was trying to find himself.
0: (laughs) Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so by the time you guys moved in together, your mom and yourself and you, and she kind of settled down, she got her job and all of that. How old were you at that point? Uh, So
1: at that point, I remember being about three and uh, my mother found a, a wonderful uh, caregiver for me that I still, well, and she's passed away now, but you know, she was at my mm-hmm. wedding. I had a, a beautiful bond with her. So again, yet another fabulous, uh, caring woman in my life who was
0: there for me. That's amazing. Now walk me through the next few years of your life and what that looked like for you. Mm-hmm. I struggled with learning disabilities,
1: when I look back on it now, to be honest with you, Amy, I wonder if what I was experiencing was, you know, some some post-trauma from all of the upheavals. I was going to say the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah, the upheavals, the not having any consistency, the attachment breakdown. It was, it was really tough. And so obviously it makes sense that I would have challenges with school. Back in those days, they didn't do a lot to sort of help you with your confidence. They made you feel like, you know, you were different. Kids back then didn't really know, you know, about understanding and respecting people's differences. Uh, So, you know, I was made fun of. Uh, It was, yeah, yeah, it was really tough. You know, things sort of moved along and I, by about grade seven, grade eight, I really started to feel strong in who I was. You know, I started to sort of figure out school a little bit. I also made some really amazing friends and felt like I, you know, fit in. And then my mother and my stepfather, who came into my life at around uh, age eight, he had moved to Mississauga, where where I lived for my high school years. Uh, actually, Actually, after having a really tough car accident where he almost died, we kind of, I think my mother realized at that point that she really wanted to bring her and my stepfather, who at the time was, was just like this amazing figure in my life. You know, the idea was that we would live together in Mississauga, but again, that attachment, that having to start over again, it was emotionally, I really think, you know, that was one of those life experiences that, uh, it took me a long time to get over. Of course. Yeah.
0: Cause you had finally found your footing in grade seven and eight, you were mm-hmm. saying, um, and, and what about your biological father and all of this? What was he like, did you have a relationship with him? What did that look like for you through this time?
1: Well, that, that's an interesting, um, a uh, question that you asked because back when I was a child, like I'm, you know, forty seven years old now, so this is a long time ago. That was before they had open adoptions, so I was given up by the ch- through the Catholic Children's Aid Society, and I didn't know who my family was. But that's an interesting turn in the story that I, I'll tell you about after. Uh, Because I found my family um, at age 29 and it's quite an incredible story. So I started high school in in, uh, Mississauga and that was an interesting experience because I was, I think I, I realized that it was my personality and my sense of humor and, you know, being kind of like fun and outgoing was my way to make friends. So I, I started hanging out with kids that were older than me because I had one cousin that lived in, uh, who already lived there, that introduced me to friends and family uh, out there in, in my new uh, school, hanging out with older kids. I got into drinking and partying. And in grade nine, I failed pretty much almost all of the subjects that I was enrolled in, it was a tough year because I was, I was more concerned about making my, you know, these new peers accept me than doing well in school. And I also had this, you know, unconscious bias towards myself that I was dumb because I had learning disabilities. Uh, I, over the high school years, my, uh, adopted father and I reconnected and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, I, I saw him throughout my childhood. Uh, he actually also moved into Toronto. Um, and so it was kind of funny. I was actually taking the bus every weekend to visit him, um, as part of the separation agreement that finally got, uh, finalized after my parents worked out their differences. And so I would every weekend, Instead of spending time with my peers in, in my, um, grade school, I was off, uh, every weekend to spend time with my, with my dad, which was tough again, for my attachment issues and whatnot, just trying to feel settled into one life. I felt like I was living these multiple lives. So then, um, I get to the point where my father's moved back to Toronto and for one year, it was a little bit easier. I could take the subway to go visit him. And, you know, I was trying to establish my life in, in my new city in Mississauga. And then he says to, to me that he has bought a resort and I got to be a part of that. So in the summer I would go and I would work Um, at the resort, I would clean cottages. I would help with the recreation programs. Uh, you know, I was meeting all kinds of kids from, from all over the place, like Americans and and whatnot, and also the staff that that were working there. So my resilience really started when I saw my father have a nervous breakdown because the resort wasn't doing well. And, uh, it was the start of another, uh, recession in the mid eighties and it was embarrassing. Uh, He was heavily drinking and uh, he was doing things that all of the staff were like, what's going on? And it caused problems within the marriage between my stepmother and my adoptive father. And I I kind of wondered like, you know, what's going to happen to all of us? And Uh, You know, luckily I had my mother to my adoptive mother to go home to and have that stability. Eventually realizing that my path was to help other uh, women as well as business owners. Mainly my niche is working with women uh, business owners and professionals. And part of that was healing what, you know, I saw my stepmother go through, what I saw my adoptive father go through. It was one of those really intense experiences seeing that and
0: his life was never the same after that. So when did you know that your own trauma was affecting you? How did that look in your life and how did it manifest in your life?
1: That's a really good question. It came in different life experiences. So they say when, when someone goes through trauma, they re-experience it at different milestones in their life, right? So for me, starting post-secondary school, I think I started to feel it then, the anxiety really started to come out, um, bouts of depression.
0: What did that look like for you when it was coming out and you were doing your post-secondary education?
1: Well, you know, that vigilance to be perfect, that vigilance to try and figure things out, a lot of crying, a lot of like breakdowns through school. I can remember in being in class, And being so overwhelmed, especially when I was trying to figure out how to study, uh, having learning disabilities, figuring out how to study. And this was before they had any sort of accommodations. You just you just had to figure it out.
0: So the paramount thing in a divorce situation is having parents put their children first. Parents lead in these situations, and if they are going to fight and spend energy on fighting, the children are the ones that miss out. In these situations, when children are at the center of the equation, co-parenting becomes easy. Parents are able to put their egos aside, and the children benefit from being just children. I often tell my own four children who are products of divorce that nothing is ever their own fault and to advocate for themselves to ensure they are building boundaries with their parents so that they can maintain boundaries and don't become the parents in the situation.
1: My father had talked me into going to college as opposed to going to university, even though I was accepted. I actually even got a scholarship, but he convinced me that that was the route to take. So I had that kind of in the back of my head too, like I'm not good enough because I didn't go to university, even though I was accepted. Where it was showing up in really throughout my adult life. And probably when I was a child as well, um, was just not feeling good enough and not feeling like I had any confidence, feeling scared to try new things, feeling like I had to do the same things over and over again, because those were tested and approved. Like I could, I knew that they worked Uh, It wasn't until I started my own business that I really allowed myself to go outside of my comfort zone. And interestingly enough, uh, another really traumatizing experience for me was getting my driver's license. My mother didn't want me to get my driver's license when I was uh, a teenager because she felt that I wasn't very focused and, and she felt that I would get into a car accident or whatever. So it wasn't until my early 20s that I was applying for a job it, for a recreation position that I needed to have mm-hmm. have a license.
0: And I kept failing. I want to ask you about something because I find this to be so interesting. And this is also because I've worked in mental health for majority of my healthcare career myself with your mom being so afraid of you getting your license and repeatedly probably telling you through your teenage years that you know i don't want you to get your license yet i'm not sure i'm worried and probably because of her own trauma in dealing with your stepfather and that major accident that he was in perhaps it seems like it may have manifested this in you right so you're going and you're and you're taking this driving test repeatedly and you're just not passing Yes, I. D- oh my gosh, you just
1: Amy, you just gave me an aha moment. I didn't even <laughs> connect the accent. How did I not?
0: How did I not even see that? I do this for a living. That's why I it was just I was listening to you talking, and I was thinking that's probably what was going on because it goes into your subconscious mind, right? So yes. it's there. The stories are there, and for us to rewrite those stories or you know make a journey out of it, it's kind of like the barrier that's there in front of us that we don't realize. So that must have been a huge fight for you yes
1: I didn't get my license until I was 27
0: so you were talking a little bit earlier about meeting your biological parents or your biological father can you tell me about that experience sure yeah so uh
1: you know as I said I've I've been through a lot of uh milestones in my life and every time that I've gone through a big milestone uh the depression comes back up again I definitely experienced it when I found my birth family. Um, only, mm-hmm. I mean, I was so thrilled to meet them. So I'm really an incredible story, um, actually. So through the Adoption Disclosure Registry, they give you the opportunity to, you get to see if someone else out there is looking for you. This was before they had open adoptions and they just unsealed your records and gave it to you. So when I was like about 19, I applied to find my birth family and no match came. So, you know, I I, I just moved on with life. and And then at 29, yeah. I got a message saying that that they would search for one of my birth family members, either the father or the mother. And I had to make that big decision. Which do I who do I look for? And, you know, luckily I, w- I was able to strategize with, with my adoptive mother and she and I discussed it and we, you know, strategized and we said, okay, chances are your birth mother will know where your birth father's landed versus the other way around. So we was like, okay, we're going to go after the birth mother. So I, I sent yeah. back the information. I said, yes, that's who I want to look for. And within a month they found her. And we started by writing letters and the letters were really vague and I couldn't figure out like, you know, they almost, it almost bordered on being cold and I'm like, Oh, what's going on here. Right. And so it was a bit disappointing, but I was like, you Mm -hmm. know, hopeful and kept wanting to meet her and figure out what this process was going to be. And then, um, (laughs) the mail, the Canada post went on strike for like six months and I couldn't, correspond with her through. I, I, for some reason I, we couldn't do email. They weren't ready for that yet or yeah, I'm not even yeah. sure. So then once the mail finally uh, came back in, this letter arrived, this big, thick letter. And I opened it up and it's a letter from my birth father explaining everything because my birth mother and my birth father actually married and I have a full biological sister.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And so uh, unfortunately, no one knew about me because I was, I guess you could say conceived in Nova Scotia. My birth father and my birth mother came to Toronto to, to have me. And then they went back to uh, Nova Scotia. My mother wanted to keep me, but my birth father was still really young and was unsure what he wanted and that sort of thing. So they gave me up for adoption. And, you know, as I said, I went through my life, not really knowing who I was. And I can remember as a girl seeing people who looked like me or someone would say to me, oh, we found your doppelganger, you know, and I always wondered like, Could that be my, could that be my mother? Could that be my father? It was was pretty, or could that could be a sister or a brother? By that point, I was married. And um, my husband and I flew to Nova Scotia and I met them at the airport for the very first time. And it was extremely emotional and it brought back a lot of trauma and a lot of trauma for them, a lot of trauma for them too. Uh, But we instantly were kindred soul mates in that we shared, we love to hike. We love nature. Like my mother, my adoptive mother is very much an indoors person. Like she likes to read and, you know, it'd be hard to get her to go for a hike. Whereas, whereas my parents were like nature lovers and, you know, and then you start to see things in yourself in them. And so um, by this point, They had had the conversation about the fact, like to the family about me and, and to my sister and, and, uh, that, that sort of thing. So we slowly got to know each other, but, uh, there was a lot of, there were feelings of depression and anxiety from loss. Like that's the weird thing about depression, right? You could be happy and going through an amazing experience of being reunited with people who you love and care about, but it brings up a lot of stuff. And so, uh, you know, I was doing through some counseling and then my next big trial and tribulation was having my first child. And as I said to you earlier, you relive everything that you go through, um, right? So when when you have a child, you experience, like you think a lot about what your birth experience was like and some of what you went through and they say, I mean, I don't know With the sciences around this, but they say that you can relive experiences. So when I was having had my first child, I actually ended up with postpartum depression. And I'm not saying it's because of being adopted. There was a number of factors, but I think that it's certainly, you know, unresolved issues. When you go through big events that that will come up.
0: It's common for adopted children to not have a sense of belonging. Oftentimes, they feel abandonment and wonder about what their life would have been if they stayed with their biological parents. I have had many adult clients explain the feeling of wonder and what-ifs attached to the abandonment that comes from their situation. In some cases, when their adoptive parents are unstable, it can exasperate their feelings about being adopted. In my opinion, our formative years are everything. They give us the bedrock to our perspectives, the ability to learn and think. I believe nature plays a large role, but nurture is especially important during this stage of life. This has been scientifically proven time and time again. Attachment, the ability to trust, and the ability to love is also often formed during this time.
1: I think my real journey with counseling started when, and an understanding of what anxiety is and how it shows up, and depression and how it shows up, and how you can get through these things that really came to me after having my first child for the first time after that experience, I started seeing a, um, psychiatrist and I went back and I dove into all of the childhood issues that I had and up into my adulthood and dealing with stuff around, um, Challenges with work and dealing with different personalities, and and how anxiety was showing up at work for me. Uh, yeah, and then because my I had my second child, and after having my second child, I realized that you know now's maybe the time to start my own business because um, I knew that I had issues finding the right childcare. Um, I had a situation occur where, um, my, my son was left at home alone with a nanny, um, who then picked up my other son from school and left the one child home alone for like a, Oh my gosh, that is so scary. Exactly. And so that was the strong catalyst to say, okay, I need to think about self-employment because this isn't working for me. And decided that I would um, stay at home and to start to build a business. And because I had such strong connections to women in my life, that's how Women in Biz Network was born. And I'll tell you, I've owned my business now for 10 years and everything that I've been through and all of my insecurities and all of my mindset issues, all of that stuff comes up when you go out on your own and you start a business. And so I've always said to people and I've always, you know, talked openly um, on stage about my story around depression, and anxiety and how it shows up in
0: my work life. So let's talk a little bit about that, Lee, because I I really, um, I admire that you're talking about it openly with people. And it's something that I'm a huge advocate of because you're absolutely right. Our businesses are often reflections of ourselves, if not most of the time, all of the time. So if you want to go out there and release a business into the world that's going to be successful, it is an act of self-reflection that you're going through on a daily basis. And the experiences are re-traumatizing of the traumas you have experienced uh, throughout your life, whether it's conscious or like I've mentioned, subconscious. So in your day-to-day with this business that you've grown. And obviously there's 35,000 women who are supporting it by being a part of your network. Can you talk to me a little bit about those rough days and what do you do in those rough days to deal with the depression and the anxiety when it comes up?
1: Well, that's that's a really good question. Um, you know, self-care is a really important part of that. In those earliest days of starting the business, it's really hard to have time for self-care. And you're also, if you're, if hopefully when you start a business, you're doing something that you love. So you're passionate about it, right? So it's like, it becomes almost like a job that you love. That's like a hobby, but it's also something that you're doing to make money, right? So, uh, it can be tough to have boundaries around when to actually stop working and take good care. So for me in the last number of years, what I've had to prioritize is having downtime, not always being on call, um, like whether that be email, whatever my work is, it's just having downtime. Um, it, it looks like really reframing, um, failure when you experience it or setbacks or, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a client that decides that they no longer are going to work with you or, you know, things like that. Like everybody has to deal with, um, with failure, but someone who has issues with, you know, has a a sort of a downtrodden sense of self will take that opportunity to reinforce poor beliefs that they have about themselves. And so, you know, anytime that something would go wrong, I would automatically think like a health, a person with a healthy mindset would be like, oh, that happened. And, you know, maybe I played a a part in it, but it's not like an opportunity to now bash myself down to feeling like I am dirt. Whereas I have to admit, I spent a lot of time doing that because somehow it felt like I was doing something. Like I can remember as a kid and I was waiting on news And I would say to myself, well, if I think that I don't get it, then I get it, then I'll be, then it will be that much better. And so, you know, I've, for a long time, I think I carried that mindset that like, if I think that something's not going to work out and then it works out, well, it's a bonus. Well, no, you have to have the vision and the direction to believe that you matter, to believe that those good things are going to happen to you because, because you're, your mindset is such a powerful thing. I learned through my, um, work with understanding and learning about depression and anxiety that everyone has, uh, like what I like to say, a gremlin or like this little evil guy that sits on your shoulder and, and feeds nasty, negative things to you. And your thoughts aren't reality. Your thoughts aren't, you know, if you're having negative thoughts about yourself, that doesn't mean that they're a reality. So I'll I'll ask myself those questions like, how do I know that this is true? Like, what proof do I have? And and that really helps as well. And exercise, exercise, meditation, time in nature, um, and surrounding myself with people who care about me and and who are going to um, help me
0: to see the value that I bring to the world. That's excellent. And now, you know, about the boundaries piece, is there something that you do in particular? Like, for example, I block off my calendar for my time that's supposed to be my self-care time. And in that time, I will only meditate or I'll actually do nothing or I'll just go for a walk. Do you do anything like that? Like, is there something, if there's one thing that you would recommend entrepreneurs do right now, what would it be?
1: Yeah, so I do block off time in my calendar. I have themed days. Um, and Mm -hmm. it could be like, you know, things around money. Right. So like I have financial Fridays and I block off time in my calendar to think about finances and what I need to do. And I only think about it that day. So I try to table times to think about certain things and I'll table in, like you said, time for exercise. Um, so I'll put that into my calendar, Um, and you'll stick to it. Yeah. I try to, I mean, there's some (laughs) weeks I'm not as good as others, but, um, I also think about convergence. And so like Mm. my husband and I in the evenings, if I haven't gone out for a walk during the day, I'll say to him, like, I have got to get out for a walk. Will you come for a walk with me? And then, you know, sometimes, you know, I try not to do this every time because I want walks to be peaceful and I want to associate them with being peaceful. But sometimes we talk about, you know, challenges that are easier to talk about on a walk. Um, you know, it could be something like, it could be like dissecting a previous f- setback that we've had in our relationship and say like, you know, how can we do this better? And sort of like, you know, walk and talk. So, you know, sometimes I do that or, or sometimes I'll talk about like situations that we have to figure out with the kids, um, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So there's convergence, right? So I, I, I let my husband know what's important to me and he lets me know what's important to him. And we make sure that we make time for that as a couple and also separately. Um, And part of it, especially working from home is, is communicating with him. And I think that's been my biggest learning point in the last year is communicating your values and communicating your boundaries and how to do it before you're at the state where you're going to blow up at someone.
0: So um, that's, that's an amazing point. It's kind of preemptively planning your relationship with each other and opening up those communication channels. Mm -hmm.
1: And the other thing I do is I learned about um, something called the window of tolerance. The window of tolerance is that when you're in hyper arousal, when you're like, you're, vibrating and you're like, you know, like you're stressed out and the ideas are coming in a mile a minute and you can't calm down and you, and you think you got to go into hyper, hyper decision making then because, because everything is flowing into you and you must make a decision. And that is, I've learned through therapy, that's the worst time to make decision.
0: <laughs> absolutely and, I totally agree yeah. so when you're up here
1: don't make mis- decisions wait till you're here and then on the 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 other side of the window is when you're in um hypo arousal so that's when you can't get out of bed You're de- you know your depression has put you into like maybe digging your head in the sand because you're avoiding feeling avoiding your feelings and you yes. know I think we've all been there too So when I notice now, now, like I, I, am a very visual person. So I picture this window frame and I picture the beautiful sun coming in, uh, through that window frame. And I try to stay where the sun is. I don't want to be above the sun or below the sun. I try to stay where the sun is. And that's really helped.
0: I love that. I absolutely love that. And thank you so much for sharing that because it's so helpful to anybody who's going to listen to this episode. In each of our episodes, Lee, we ask if you'd like or who you would like to dedicate this podcast episode to. Oftentimes people dedicate it to somebody who's not a survivor. And so can you dedicate this podcast to somebody who's very important to you and talk to us a little bit about why? Hmm.
1: I would de- like to dedicate this podcast to my grandmother um, who's who passed away when I was in my early 20s and she was such an incredible support to my mother and to me and when I didn't feel who I was when I lost myself I would always go go and I'd stay with her and I would and I would regain that piece of myself that was missing
0: Thank you. That's so beautiful. And keep her memory alive. I teach my children of all the people I've lost over the years who I loved. And I find that that's so healing for me personally, because they remind me, they remember the moments like they knew these people as well. Um, So so keep her memory alive. She sounds like an amazing person. Mm, Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lee. I love this conversation. You are remarkable, and I'm so excited to learn more about Women in Biz and this network you've created. Thank
1: you so much. And thank you for some really interesting questions. And I love some of the different spins that you put on your podcast. It's really cool. Thank you.
0: I'm proud of the fact that Lee has used her experience to talk openly about her trauma, her depression and anxiety, and has normalized this conversation. She has impacted people and is impactful as a person, and I admire that about her. She could have gone either way, but chose to challenge herself and grow. Lee and I are both survivors. Survivorship is not for the meek. Many times we do not have the ability to choose, we just persevere. In Lee's case and my own, we turned our lemons into lemonade. We use resources and the love of those around us to leverage hope and care to fight through and then teach others how to do the same. That is what this podcast is all about. And for people who cannot see the hope or the light, we help them to see ideas on how to take the first steps to get there. Thank you for listening to Calm After the Storm. The podcast is dedicated to telling stories about survivorship, healing, and thriving after trauma. If you like this episode, support Calm After the Storm, survivorship, and other stories by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Calm After the Storm is created by me, Amy Syed, and produced by Quill Incorporated. Calm After the Storm is created by me, Amy Syed, and produced by Quill Incorporated. You can find Lee at www.womeninbiznetwork.com, and her handle is at Lee Mitchell on Twitter.